Well, it's a blessing to be back at Nazarene Bible College. See some familiar faces from previous visits. Thank you for the honor of being here, Dr. Graves. Since the Lord's presence here. And the encouraging news I have for you is between this moment and when you leave, you've got a brand new chance to connect with the Lord. I recall reading, he's a friend who sticks closer than a brother. These services are not about guilt trips. They're about growth opportunities. He's not here to hassle you or hammer you. He's here to help you. Amen. And it's an honor to be with you. And I'm trusting that the Holy Spirit would assist every one of us. Students, faculty, administration, visiting friends. To tune in to the Holy Spirit. Squeeze some fresh insight from His Word. And implement the appropriate obedience that would be consistent in His will. I'm convinced that right now pulsating in God's mind and in His heart is a great idea. What your personal life would look like. What Nazarene Bible College would look like. If all of us would come to maximum conformity to His divine strategy for us. Amen. So we've got an opportunity for some introspection. Some soul searching. And some fresh obedience. Let's pray together. Father, what would you like to say to us this evening? You know, every one of us. You know who we are. You know where we're coming from. You know the challenges that we face. You know our histories. You know our sense of call to your work. You know our individual and collective potential for your kingdom. I pray, God, that you take these services tonight and on through the next few days and show us some fresh truth from the book and enable us to hear your word. To understand your word and to obey your word we all have room for improvement so God I pray that you'd begin in our hearts from this very first evening and coach us from the book and may our responses put a smile on your heart in Jesus name Amen I need to tell you about Harold no not Dr. Harold Graves Jr. your new president Harold's mom and dad divorced when he was a child in elementary school. His mom remarried and the stepdad was mean, cruel, vulgar, and abusive. Harold's stepdad gave him a nickname. He called him Lemmy. When Harold revealed the story, I said, why did he call you Lemmy? He said, that was in the day when a malfunctioning car got the nickname of a lemon. And he said, you're nothing but a lemon. And lemon evolved into the nickname Lemmy. And it stuck. And Harold grew from elementary school age years all through junior high, clear into senior high with a self-image gelled in his mind and in his heart, I'm nothing but a lemon. Harold met Judy and they got married. A few years later, I was invited to come and hold a church 
a revival in their local church. The town there in Northern California was so small they didn't even have a motel or a hotel. And the pastor arranged for me to be the house guest at Harold and Judy's home. We shared meals together around the kitchen table. They took me on a, an excursion up above the Oregon border, showed me Crater Lake. As we shared lunch across the restaurant table and back in their home, the whiff that I got of the direction of conversation led me to blurt an impulsive, unguarded, evangelist-type question. I said, have you ever considered that the Lord might be calling you to full-time Christian service? We were having some soup and sandwich for lunch around their kitchen, dinette set. And I thought in unison their face was going to drop in their soup bowl. <laughs> and they said, why would you ask such a question? I says, I just sensed the tone and the flavor of our talk. He said, yeah, we've been thinking about it and praying about it. I said, there's somebody I want you to meet. Can I use your phone? He said, yeah. I didn't even finish my soup or sandwich. I got up from the table and went to the phone. Air code 719-555-1212. What's that? Long distance information for Colorado Springs. <laughs> I want the phone number for the Nazarene Bible College. I called. Chris Williamson answered the phone. Chris, this is Norman. I want to talk to John. John Williamson, then the chaplain of the school. John, this is Norman. I want you to meet Harold. <laughs> that was a Wednesday through Sunday revival at Doris, California, just about 10 miles south of the Oregon border, below Klamath Falls. On Monday morning, I got in the pastor's car, and he drove me to the Medford, Oregon airport. And Harold and Judy got in a pickup truck. And they drove to Colorado Springs. They rented an apartment, got a job, and enrolled. Went back, packed up their stuff, rented their house, and entered the upcoming semester. And he said, Norman, if I ever get through this deal, I want you to hold my first revival. I was sitting at my desk one day, phone rang. Norman, this is Harold. Why don't you come preach a revival for me? He says, I said, where are you? He says, Vermont. <laughs> I saved up my friggin' flyer, Miles. And timed it for October when the leaves were changing. And the maple syrup was fresh. And jumped on a plane and flew to Chicago and from Chicago to Burlington. And we had a wonderful revival at the Waterville Church of the Nazarene. Harold is bivocational, serving the church and driving a school bus. Had a great week. Average attendance was somewhere between 20 and 30. And the only person I ever came to the altar was a visitor from another church. <laughs> he pastored that church effectively and successfully for seven years. I talked to him a couple days ago. After seven years of ministry there, he's now been called to pastor the Church of the Nazarene, where I was holding that revival.
clear back in 1993. His home church in the same town where he grew up as Lemmy. Why do I got to tell you that? Because God has a dream for you as a student. He has a dream for you as an administrator. He has a dream for you as a professor to have an impact for Christ and for souls for time and for eternity. Harold and Judy, he was then driving a truck for the sawmill and she was the teller at the bank. And now they're serving as pastor of the Doris, California Church of the Nazarene. Thirteen years later, God's got a dream for you. What's it look like? Paul describes it pretty well in Romans 11 and 12. You got a few minutes? Let's take a new look at a familiar passage. Quite enthusiastically, Paul is celebrating God and his divine attributes at Romans 11.33. And as I read familiar verses, would you please project your own imagination for Harold and Judy. And then scroll down and project your imagination and locate yourself. 1133 of Romans. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Therefore. I urge you brothers in view of God's mercy to offer your bodies as living sacrifices. Holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing and perfect will. At 11.33 Paul celebrates God with the words. Oh the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. What's he talking about? Well, candidly spoken, he's saying, folks, we've got one super awesome, indescribable God running this universe. No one's ever advised him and no one's ever made him alone. From him and through him and to him are all things. Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Folks, we'd be having one super awesome, indescribable God running this universe. Then he poses a couple questions. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? What's he getting at? He's saying, when did your phone ever ring? And it was God. Said, I hate to bother you, but we were in a committee meeting up here, totally baffled how we ought to proceed. You heard the news, you read the papers, things were messed down there, they're getting worse every week. Really would appreciate your advice. That's what he's asking. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? What's he getting at? When did God ever call you and ask you for advice? Then he asked another question. Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? What's he talking about? He's saying, when did your phone ever ring? And that was God saying, hate to bother you, but we're flat broke. Major economic downturn, total recession, high unemployment. <laughs> and if you could loan us a couple thousand for 90 days and make a big difference in our cash flow, when did God ever call you and hit you up for a loan? What's Paul talking about here? He said, folks, we got one super awesome, indescribable God run this universe. No one's ever advised him. No one's ever made him alone. From him, 
through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Amen. What's the next word in Paul's letter to the church at Rome? Therefore. It's a pivotal word. A hinge word. It attaches the previous data to the forthcoming conclusion. I guess you all know in the original writings these chapter and verse divisions were not included. Later added for a reading convenience. That is an ongoing uninterrupted flow of Paul's thought led and inspired by the Holy Spirit as he writes to the church at Rome. His intended audience is not the center out in the world. This is a letter to believers at the church in Rome. Therefore, synonyms for that word therefore accordingly or in view of these undebatable facts. Considering the aforesaid information, therefore, then he uses the word I urge. King James uses a different term, beseech. Do y'all use that word, beseech? It's not a common vernacular American term, is it? Any of you parents said to your kids, I beseech you. <laughs> Turn off the TV, clean your bedroom, do your homework. You don't use the term. You use its content and its intent. Do a little homework on it. Find out it has a red face, elevated emotions. A raised voice. When I looked it up in those fat books of the smart boys, right? You know what I found out? The word picture that surfaced was you twist one's arm at the point of breakage. You come on as hard and strong as you can without totally bulldozing someone else's personal freedom of choice. It's not a wimpy, timid hint. It's not a kind, polite, pastoral suggestion. It's a red face, twist your arm, raise your voice, come on, strong word. Here it's translated urge. The best definition I found was aggressive persuasion. <laughs> What's he saying? Folks, we'd be having one super awesome, indescribable God running the universe. No one's ever advised him. No one's ever made him alone. From him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Therefore, accordingly, or in view of these undebatable facts, I aggressively, with a red face, twist your arm with a raised voice, Brothers, folks in the church. In the original language, that's a gender-neutral term used for both male and female born-again believers in the context of the church. Therefore, I aggressively persuade you church folks, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices. There's little prepositional phrases there in view of God's mercy that some preachers jump over in the interest of time. I'll uh, ignore that temptation and we'll park there for a minute, okay? In view of God's mercy. Therefore, I aggressively persuade you folks in the church in view of God's mercy. You know, I understand that Paul's quite the author on the subject of grace, but he chose a different term for that sentence. He said, in view of God's mercy. Is there a difference between mercy and grace? Oh, I think so. Well, what's grace? You've heard that definition in Sunday school, didn't you? Halfway between the donut and the decaf. <laughs> the unmerited favor of God. Anybody ever heard that definition? Grace is the giving nature of God what we don't deserve. God so loved the world that he, what? Gave. Bible says God is what? Love. And love gives. God so loved the world that he gave. Grace is the giving nature of God, what we don't deserve. But he didn't say grace there, he said mercy. 
Well, what's mercy? While grace is the giving nature of God, what we don't deserve, mercy is the withholding nature of God, what we do deserve. As Paul sat there at his table, squeezing his pen real hard, ink leaking on his fingers, spilling onto his page, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit says, put mercy there. This is how it sounds. Folks, we'd be having one super awesome, indescribable God running this universe. No one's ever advised him and no one's ever made him alone. From him and through him and to him are all things to him. Be the glory forever. Amen. Therefore, accordingly, in view of this undebatable fact, I aggressively twist your arm with a red face and a raised voice. You folks in the church, the only response to that kind of God, especially when you consider that he has withheld from you what your sins deserve, is for you to voluntarily present your bodies as a living sacrifice. What's that look like? It looks like Harold and Judy Brimmer packing a Chevy pickup truck late Sunday night and leaving out at dawn. Just because God spoke to their heart and called them to full-time Christian service. And he left Lemmy behind in the rearview mirror and followed God in a servant right now. A living sacrifice. I looked up the word there translated mercy. It has a military flavor and tone. To have a biblical understanding of that word translated mercy would be to view two warring soldiers in sword conflict. Imagine the stronger having the upper hand over the weaker. The weaker one's on his back. The victory has his knee in his opponent's chest and his sword to his throat. Death is pending. Got the picture? To have a biblical understanding of that word translated mercy would be to view the victor voluntarily drop his sword, move his knee from his opponent's chest, grab him by the wrist and stand him to his feet and hug him and say, let's not fight. Let's be friends. Forget it. Go home. Forget about it. It's history. I forgive you. It's all over. But with a picturesque military term, Paul paints a scene for us. You and I we're at war with God. Isaiah says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We turn each one to his own way. And earlier in Romans, Paul says, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. You and I were at war with God, stubbornly, willfully, defiantly doing our own thing. And he was the stronger in the conflict, and he had us on our back and his knee in our chest. And it soared to our throat, and we deserve to die and go to hell. But if you'll check out Ephesians chapter 2, you'll find these words. But God... Aren't you glad for that? Amen. But God, who is rich in mercy, with a great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions and sins, what did he do? He dropped his knife and moved his knee out of our chest. And he grabbed us by the wrist and stood us to our feet and hugged us and said, let's not fight, let's be friends, go home, I forgive you. This is history, forget all about it. And he sent us home, washed in the sacrificial atonement of Jesus' shed blood on Calvary. Amen. That's mercy. Amen. Can I rewind it one more time? Folks, we'd be having one super awesome, indescribable God running this universe. No one's ever advised him. No one's ever made him alone. From him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Therefore, accordingly, in view of these facts, I aggressively persuade you church folks, the only response that makes a lick of sense whatsoever in this undeniable context 
is for you to voluntarily present your bodies as a living sacrifice, especially when you consider that he has withheld from you what your sins deserve. He used a familiar term, sacrifice. They knew about the time when you bring the calf or the doves or the lamb to the temple and throat would be slid and blood would be spilled. But he found a new adjective, living. And he bolted it onto the front side of sacrifice. Time for the sacrifice, but leave the calf. Forget about the lamb. Don't mess with the doves. Time for you to get on the altar. Time for a death. Not your physical anatomy, but the death of your own carnal, inherited predisposition to bug God's authority and insist on your own selfish way and pursue your own agenda. That needs to die, not be negotiated. What's it look like? I already told you. It looks like Harold and Judy packing a Chevy pickup late Sunday night and heading for Colorado Springs just because God the Holy Spirit put a burden on their heart, a call to full-time Christian service. Amen. He says, if you're dead serious about it, prove it. Avoid conformity to the world's pattern. And be transformed by the renewing of your mind. I looked at that verse too. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world. Well, the truth is, these are days when there's too much concession and compromise. In church life and in Christian's life. And sometimes and some places. Now, the last thing we need is any perfectionistic legalism that skews your concept of God and leaves you to mistakenly conclude he's some mean irritable grouch impossible to please who puts you on some tedious treadmill of performance oriented religion it becomes nothing more than salvation by works well we sure don't need that we sure don't need to op go to the opposite extreme and brain dead error of liberal worldliness and compromise that says God is love so anything goes you all have a good time and the truth is in the middle of those two extreme polarized errors is a sensible, livable, balanced biblical wholeness where I present my body as a living sacrifice. And the top priority of my heart is, God, I don't know what you want, but whatever you want, that's what I want. No place I'm not willing to go, nothing I'm not willing to do, nothing I'm not willing to say, nothing I'm not willing to give, no one I'm not willing to be. I belong to you exclusively 100% without any competition or reservation. And whether you're a student or an administrator or a faculty member, that commitment needs to be maintained throughout our journey all the way home to heaven. Amen. He says, if you're serious about it, avoid conformity to the world's pattern. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. What's that mean, renewing of your mind? And how do you accomplish it? Well, simply realize that whatever you expose yourself to will have an influence on you. On a cold January morning, Go outside at 6 a.m. with fresh fallen snow, barefoot, jogging shorts, and a t-shirt with a snow shovel. Stay out there about an hour, getting your exercise, doing your aerobics, getting your heart rate up, and burning some calories from the pizza the night before. When you head in an hour later for your oatmeal, You'd be a little chilly. <laughs> Why? Because whatever you expose yourself to and subject yourself to is going to have an influence on you. Similarly, Paul says, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. How do you pull that off? Just realize that whatever you subject and expose yourself to is going to have an influence on you. You subject yourself to God's word every day, 
that will have an influence on you. You subject yourself to piety and prayer, that will have an influence on you. You subject yourself and expose yourself to public worship, that will have an influence on you. You subject yourself to the lyrics of wholesome Christian music, Christian literature, that will have an influence on you. Flip side, you subject yourself to worldly entertainments that dishonor God, that pollute your mind, that will have an influence on you. You dead serious about a lifetime commitment to the Lord Jesus? He says, prove it. Specifically and deliberately in response to the Holy Spirit's leading in your life, avoid conforming to the world's pattern. There'll be some places you won't go. There'll be some things that you won't do. And it won't be the result of some dark-suited Doberman pincher preacher hassling you into conformity. <laughs> It'll be the result of what the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit has done in your own submissive, yielded heart. What's it look like? I already told you. It looks like Harold and Judy packing a Chevy pickup truck at midnight on a Sunday night in 1993 and heading to the Springs to sign up for Nazarene Bible College simply because the God, the Holy Spirit, called them into full-time Christian service and they were serious about presenting themselves as living sacrifices. And if God would do it for Harold and Judy, and send them clear back to Vermont where they had a potent influential impact in that church those seven years and then lead them all the way back to Doris where he grew up with an image of Lemmy now he's serving that congregation as a credible influential pastor in the first district assembly Harold and Judy went to they received every notable award that the district superintendent offered for church in numerical and percentage growth And NBC had a part in it. So if you professors or administrators ever have a private moment of silent musing and you entertain the contemplation of what in the world am I doing here? You're helping a Harold and Judy get to Vermont and back out to California and have an impact for Christ and for souls. Amen. And if students similarly have a private moment of contemplation and reflection, say, what in the world am I doing here? <laughs> You're doing the same thing Harold and Judy did with that Chevy pickup. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then you'll be testifying regarding the triple serendipitous benefit this is good and acceptable and perfect. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. And a day will dawn. And a thought will come to your consciousness and soak down into your heart. And you'll ask yourself, where in the world am I? And how did I ever get here? And the Holy Spirit will bear witness with your spirit that you are right smack dab in the center of God's will Amen. for your life. And you'll conclude, I am unspeakably happy and fulfilled. How did I get here? A living sacrifice. Amen. I'm glad you're here. Students, administrators, professors. God's got a great year in mind for you. And I'm honored to be with you. It occurs to me that there might be some who want to have a private 
quiet visit with the Lord before you leave. I think that'd be a good idea. We'll stand and share a song of invitation. And for those of you who need to and who want to, you're invited to step in the aisle closest to where you're standing and walk forward and, and kneel here at the altar and you and the Lord can have a quiet talk before you go. Let your heart respond to the kind, loving, caring, gentle whisper of the Holy Spirit as he has tailored fresh truth from his word to you in your particular situation. If you'd like to pray, you're welcome to come while Alan leads us.